happy to be with you this evening. I thought that I would begin with a, a little poem. You, could, you might call it a prologue. And it's a poem from David Budville. And it's entitled, Bugs in a Bowl. Han Shan, the great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're all just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around, never leaving their bowl. I say that's right. Every day climbing up the steep sides, sliding back. Over and over again, around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself. Or look around, see your fellow bugs, walk around, say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. So this, this little awakening uh, encapsulates the, the course of our practice from, you could describe it as moving from the, from the narrow gravitational field of our own internal, uh, you could call it our internal drama, and I don't say it pejoratively when I say that, moving from the narrow vortex of what we might call me and mine to the wider gravitational field of the Dharma, of the truth, of the way things are, of, the, uh, of our sense of uh, where we are in the family of things, not just where we exist within the um, within the space of our own mind. So the, everything that we've been doing here uh, for the course of the last uh, days is, whether you knew it or not, is a slow uh, melting of the uh, encased, encapsulated sense of uh, separation and isolation to perhaps allowing you to feel a greater sense of uh, of intimacy with the life around you. Because it's very true that, at least I know it's true when I'm, when I'm preoccupied or absorbed, it's part of my internal dialogue, and I imagine part of your internal dialogue, is you, you feel often like you are separate. Like you are somehow cut off, separated from the flow of life, isolated, and the metaphor that's often used in the Bhagavad Gita that we often feel like we're the one wave on the ocean that's somehow gotten separated from the ocean. And we forget, we forget that we are, um, that we are, that the wave is never separate from the ocean, that we are intimately uh, connected to everything and everyone around us and that the notion of our, uh, that our, of our ultimate separation and isolation is a, a form of illusion. And I have a feeling, just by virtue of what we've been doing here, that you've, that right now, even in this room, that you, that the, 
that the sense of separation is a little, uh, the, the boundaries are a little more permeable. That in, I, I imagine that when, in the quiet of even us sitting together right now, you don't feel quite as separate as you did when you walked in here. Not quite as caught up in yourself. And isn't it, isn't it interesting that paradoxically it's because we have been attending to ourselves. The paradox is when we don't attend to ourselves, we end up stuck in that internal world of, of isolation. But when we attend to ourselves lovingly, bring that loving kindness to ourselves, that self-compassion, then quite naturally we begin to feel a sense of fullness and that overflows and we and everything kind of softens and then we're available. And so anyone that ever has a notion of this being uh, just about self-interest or this being selfish, it could ultimately, it is perhaps the most unselfish thing you could ever do. You can think of it this way, just think of the people who have to live around you every day. And they will so benefit by, the, by your tenderness by your kindness, by, your, by the light that's shining through you now. So this process of moving from the narrow vortex or narrow gravitational field of our own uh, self-preoccupation, it's a process because we have a lot of practice. We have a lot of conditioning, uh, mostly um, mental conditioning, innocent all the ways that we've been moved by the by the sea of circumstances, but we have we are as you would probably admit you spend a lot of time here trapped in your uh, in your imagination in your internal drama, kind of lost as uh, I, w- I want to kind of save that line that I was about to say because uh, I was thinking about this wonderful uh, Thai master uh, named Ajahn Buddhadasa who. Had, in his old age, he was asked to comment about humanity. You know, what would you say about the world right now and people in the world? And he didn't give some big exposition. He reduced the world and the people in it to three words. What do you think those three words were? Lost in thought. And I was talking a little bit about that, um, that study that was done about the... Uh, the amount almost 50% of the time that our life is pervaded uh, by the non-present and and only rare actually that we're quite awake in in our sensual relationships when we're doing sports, when we're, um, you know, talking to a friend, but so much of the time it's just, it's daydreaming. And while we're in that daydream, the world feels very small. We're just not, we're oblivious to how vast and how deeply connected we are to everything around us. And then that's why the same study said that when people woke up from their daydream, they weren't happy. They were really quite unhappy. And that was a, it was an interesting part of the study. And a few people asked me to provide the, the um, um, reference for it. And you can just put on, in Google, on Google, you can just put 46.9% and put daydreaming and it's just all over there. And it's, it's been very well, um, uh, all the information's just out there. So don't hesitate to look. So we're basically, our conditioning is that we're caught up in our internal drama. We are entrapped in our desires. 
know, in our in the in the whole world of the of the wanting mind, and and it is, and and we're literally trained, entrained in in being in a state of wanting, and the whole world, you could say, is is um, is driven to some degree by this uh, by the consumer machine, and the, in order for the consumer machine to keep working. It, as Sogil Rinpoche says, it has to keep us in a state of greed to keep going. And it's really versatile and, and sophisticated at keeping us in a state of perpetual, in a perpetual state of longing. And unfortunately, as he puts it, in this world that uh, claims to adore life, this very act of being in a state of longing all the time deprives us of that, the real meaning of that word. We're just constantly toppling forward into with a kind of obsession with what's next and and all this is so it just happens it's nobody's fault so you're not uh you're not um you've been influenced by just from the time you were born to keep shopping and and associate your well-being with with uh with uh partnering with uh with uh, acquisition, with uh, experiences, with travel. And because it produces a pleasant feeling when we think of having those things, we don't realize that the, the state of waiting or wanting is actually, if we look at the underlying experience of it, it's turbulent, it's painful, and it's constantly coloring the present moment in such a way that makes us feel like we can't be happy right here which unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately, it's the only source of real joy is right where we are. The only place where anyone has ever lived or will ever live is right now. This is all there is. So whatever we project, it encapsulates us in the trance of time. As though we, as we were talking about in the questions and answers this morning, as though we are are somebody who's coming from the past, moving through the present, on our way to the future. And we're literally in that little narrow dream of our, um, of our, um, our pursuit. And we can, we, can, uh, we can just get carried away. I, I brought along a, a reading that I've shared many times on retreats that describe how, fortunately in fairly humorous terms, but poignant terms, how our mind just trips out into... In, and then becomes uh, narrow in our own internal world of desire. And this is a poem called Unwise Purchases from uh, George Bilger. They sit around the house not doing much of anything. The boxed set of the complete works of Verdi, unopened. The complete Proust, unread. The French cut silk shirts which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French cut silk suit shirt. (laughs) The reflector telescope I I thought would unlock the mysteries of the heavens, but which I only used once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, 
whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with the sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. I like to think that one thing led to another between them, that by tape six or so they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in Seville or Terre Haute. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I've constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias. And I wonder... If somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes. On the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set. A woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming has always dreamed of meeting. (laughs) And while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. So not only do we become encapsulated in the narrow vortex of our desires and fantasies, which of course produce some pleasant feeling, but actually deprive us, deprive us of the source of real joy, that, that connection with life, we also become entrapped in, again, I say, I use this word a lot, but again, innocently, we become entrapped in our resentments, in, in the things that people have done and said and didn't do out of ignorance, out of, out of uh, ill will, and all the, all the ways that we've been either traumatized or you know, mistreated or, or misperceived or uh, have not had our needs met. We, we, have, uh, we have, because of our inability to, to process and metabolize the as the Buddha described, the two main causes of, of anger and resentment, frustrated desire and wounded pride, the, the deflation that happens. In the, and then because we haven't learned how to metabolize that, our mind has just uh, gone out in search. As I mentioned the other night, as a, in a, we're, or this morning in the Q&A, we've gone out in search making a case for the prosecution and we, we just dig ourselves into a more and more narrow vortex trying to control another person or a situation that is, that is not even the real source of our upset. The real source of our upset is the, the fact that we've lost connection with ourselves and that's what happens when we get harmed. We disconnect. We lose our ground and then consequently we walk around quite uh, insecure because we've left ourselves shaky. And then what we do when we feel shaky and and we've left ourselves is then we get mad at ourselves instead of what Spring was reminding us to do is to to love our insecurity, to to hold ourselves, to let let our shakiness ground in the... In the, in the field of love and acceptance and come home to ourselves. 
So we stay entrapped in, the, in our internal dialogue, lost in thought and desires and resentments and fears. So much because our well-being has become so culturally uh, bound to the imagined future, future where we're going. So much of our mind movements, the movements of our mind about what's next, we're in what, what is often described as bhava or in a state of becoming. All about where we're on our way to. And this also leaves us in that very narrow field of, of, um, of tension because the future, that future that has, is holding all of our hopes and our dreams. Any of you ever have your hopes and dreams on the future? <laughs> that future that holds all our hopes and dreams is... Um, it doesn't exist. Because as we know, time is only and always now. And, uh, and it leaves us with that, um, that, that very uneasy feeling because yes, there will be, continue to be unfolding present moments. And that's what we call the future. But we have no idea whether that those unfolding present moments will bring us any more relief than we have right now. We just don't know. So the fact that we put all our eggs in that basket of what's to come next, is it's a setup for anxiety and worry. Because um, we don't know. So the practice of meditation, everything you've been doing here is to see that in the moment, fear is just a thought in the present, is a feeling, is a worry, is all those things that, and the very feelings that normally take us out of ourselves into, in search of an imagined future, the, to actually recognize them in real time here brings us back to the vital point of our true home, which is just you right here. Not wh- what you hope will happen, what could happen, what should happen, but how you are right now. And I'd like to invite you, as we go along in this talk, to, to see how you are right now. And, but in order to do that, in order to see how you are right now, that means to, to experience this present, as we call it, and there's really, in some ways, there's no present. That's just an idea that we have about now, and there's really no now either. That's just another word that we use. To, but in order to, to, to see how you are, it is, it is necessary to, for at least for the time that you're paying attention, and hopefully that's pretty constantly, it means to uh, not look back to describe yourself, not look back, not think about your past for a moment and not think about whatever your future is for a moment and not give rise to any kind of idea about yourself. So that's the only way that we actually touch reality is if we, if we without a ban- you know, we, our thoughts are wonderful, our descriptions are wonderful, our stories are wonderful, they are, they are su- they are the, they've come out of the fabric of our conditioning and our life and our unique individuality, but they can never capture what and who you are right in this moment. They're secondhand. 
firsthand reality is what your direct and immediate experience is right here. So our practice keeps pointing to this. And so if you just let yourself be here, what could you say about yourself right now? What would you say? Anybody willing to speak into the silence? My stomach hurts. My stomach hurts. Okay. Anyone else? Just here. I'm grateful. Grateful. Free. Free. Anyone else? Throbbing. Okay. Isn't it interesting how on present evidence it's so different than the, the usual version of us that's playing in our minds that's where something's a little off. Something's wrong. Something could go wrong. Something did go wrong. Something may go right. And then, and unfortunately, that, whatever that version is, gets taken to be the reality of who you are and what you are, what your experience is. So our practice helps us come out of that, to use Spring's word, to come out of that tangle of fear, of, of, of insufficiency. As Rumi put it in one of his beautiful poems, this is just a portion of the poem where he says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. Flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being. So all, all of a sudden, just for a moment, if I stop looking ahead and not looking back, isn't it true that everything kind of opens up? There's a, there's a potential. There's a creative potential. There's a, an, there's everything, anything's possible. And this is reality. This is a fact. Everything else you think about is, is really secondhand. So the teachings of the Buddha are and the teachings of awakening, essential dharma, is the process of waking up out of the illusions about ourselves and about our lives and awakening to the reality of ourselves. And the reality of yourself here, not, not so easy to describe other than stomach hurts, throbbing, free, open, easy, easeful, here, I am, I'm awake, I'm aware. You know, many, very simple. But where, but we lose all of the evidence in real time, lose all of the evidence for those really critical, negative, insufficient, painful uh, voices that usually, uh, when we are absent-minded, define us. So we get trapped in, 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 our, uh, in our views about ourselves. We get trapped in views about everything. Political views, meditative views, social views, gender views. I mean, we, we can be completely encapsulated in our views. Views are a beautiful thing if we notice them. If they go unrecognized, 
and we become absorbed in them, then we're in that little narrow world of our preoccupations with who's right and who's wrong and who's, who's and that's mostly the, the preoccupation of the, of the thinking mind is it's, in, it's pretty much always in a state of measuring. Above, below, equal, uh, am I standing out, am I special, am I right, am I wrong? And all of this uh, obscures a, a simple reality about you, of, that um, you're okay. Somebody said okay. You're okay. So caught in, in comparisons. Let's see if I have this with me. This is a, a beautiful example and description of how we how our mind gets trapped in in uh, and narrow in the world of uh, the comp- what we call the comparing mind. Uh, this is from Ed Brown. It's a little bit takes a little bit of time, but I hopefully you'll enjoy this. He's a, a, an author, a, a Zen teacher, and a, a famous chef. And so you can understand his, the context of this. When I first started cooking at Tassajara, I had a problem. I couldn't get my biscuits to come out the way they were supposed to. I'd follow the recipe and try variations, but nothing worked. These biscuits just didn't measure up. Growing up, I had made two kinds of biscuits. One was from Bisquick and the other from Pillsbury. For the Bisquick biscuits, you added milk to the mix, then blobbed the dough and spoonfuls onto the pan. You didn't even need to roll them out. The biscuits from Pillsbury came in a kind of cardboard can. You wrapped the can on the corner of the counter, and it popped open. Then you twisted the can open more, put the pre-made biscuits on the pan, and baked them. I really like those Pillsbury biscuits. Isn't that what biscuits should taste like? Mine just weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing the ideas we get about what biscuits should taste like or what life should look like compared to what? Canned biscuits from Pillsbury? Leave it to Beaver? That's an old television program for those of you. (laughs) That's really funny. I'm sorry. People who ate my biscuits could extol their virtues, eating one after another, but to me, these perfectly good biscuits just weren't right. Finally, one day came a shifting into place, an awakening, not right compared to what? Oh, my word. I'd been trying to make canned Pillsbury biscuits. (laughs) Then came an exquisite moment of actually tasting my biscuits without the Comparing them to some previously hidden standard, they were weedy, flaky, buttery, sunny, earthy, and real, as Rilke's sonnet proclaims. They were incomparably alive, present, vibrant, and much, in fact, much more satisfying than any memory. These occasions can be so stunning, so liberating. These moments when you're, you realize your life is just fine as it is. 
thank you, only the insidious comparison to a beautifully prepared, beautifully packaged product made it seem insufficient. Trying to produce a biscuit of life with no dirty bowls, no messy feelings, no depression, no anger, was so frustrating. Then savoring, actually tasting the present moment of experience, how much more complex and multifaceted, how unfathomable, a thought, a feeling, ants crawling on the ground in the sunlight. As Zen students, we spent years trying to make it look right, trying to cover the faults, conceal the messes. We knew what a Bisquick Zen student looked like, calm, buoyant, cheerful, energetic, deep, profound. Our motto, as one of my friends says, was looking good. (laughs) We've all done it, tried to attain perfection, tried to look good as a husband, a wife, a parent. Yes, I have it together. I'm not greedy or jealous or angry. You're the one who does those things. And if you didn't do them first, I wouldn't do them either. You started it. Don't peek behind my cover, we say, and if you do, keep it to yourself. Well, to heck with it, I say. Wake up and smell the coffee. How about savoring some good old home cooking, the biscuits of today? So everything we do is to help us come out of the tangle of, of comparisons and fear thinking and me thinking and, and desire thinking and live in silence and flow down and down and even in the midst of our daily life, into ever-widening rings of being to look around and see our fellow bugs and say, hey, how you doing? Hey, nice bowl. (laughs) And when I remember to do that, when I remember that I'm here sitting with you and I actually acknowledge that, mindful of being here with you, I'm, I'm blown away by it. It's so utterly amazing. It's so simple, but it's also so mysterious. How did we get here? (laughs) Just think about all that had to come together for us to have to arrive in this moment. All the myriad causes and conditions. And when I, if I, if I start thinking about that a little more, but I stay a little bit connected, I realize how we got here didn't start this morning. It didn't start at the beginning of the retreat. It didn't start when you signed up for the retreat. It didn't sign... It started at the beginning. At the beginningless beginning. There's no beginning to us having, arriving in this place. It, it never started. Life, all of life, all of time has come to bear in this moment. And you can feel it when you're right here. You can't feel it when you're just kind of taking it for granted. And, but you can feel the, as though the whole universe has come to this very moment. Is this just me? <laughs> so, so it puts me in a, into a state of awe and, and wonder. And it brings me to that, um, that, that center point. You know, just here. And when I'm living in that center point, when I'm right here, this is what's in the, in the teachings, it's called a concentration factor. I, I was sharing it with one of the groups today. It's called ekagata. It's that sense of one-pointedness. When we finally touch that moment of one-pointedness, of, of just our mind not moving as much. And we're just here 
And we're not, for a moment, not wanting to be somewhere else. And we're not looking back. We're not looking ahead. And then when we taste this one-pointedness, the deeper meaning of the word one-pointedness, it's the one point that connects with everything. When I'm in that place of one-pointedness right here, I feel like there's no dividing line between us right now. The only way that I can create a dividing line is if I think about the past or the future. I can't find it in real time. And I notice the more I'm here in this one point, the happier I am. That's why when spring says, if you just keep coming back here, you get better. You get better. I said, said that the first night. You get better because you're connecting with that inexhaustible place called life. Not the idea of life, not the story of life, in that, at least in those moments, but just the, the felt experience. And to me, when we touch that, you may not appreciate it every moment when we touch it, but it is as though every desire is fulfilled when we're just here. So all, everything that any of us long for is fulfilled. Not the thing so much, not the, in, not the particulars, but that deepest need, what is the deepest need? What, do we, what is the hidden aim in every desire that I have? It's to be able to have that thing and then go, ah, oh, I've got it. I don't have to search anymore. That peace, relief. And what the teachings point to is that relief does not have to be waited for. That relief is your very nature when you stop going out in search. You stay here. Because then you're in touch with reality that you've always and only been here. Everything else was imaginary. So the Dharma offers so many skillful means to help us come out of the tangle of fear thinking, to help connect us with the reality of the, uh, to reality. I wanted to say the reality of the present moment, but that's really extra. And Spring spoke so beautifully about the, the joining effect, the connecting effect of, of, of loving kindness and compassion toward ourselves and toward each other. And as we describe the, the, whole, the flow of, of the Brahma Viharas are toward a, from, a narrow, from the narrow vortex of just that sentimental kind of love and affection and connection with just the ones who, just, just the ones who you like and not so much the ones you don't like to this uh, universal or boundless, um, immeasurable feeling of goodwill and friendliness and care for for all beings so that so the use of both the thoughts and the the gestures and the feeling just looking around and seeing your fellow bugs whatever allows you to connect 
because whatever you connect with to, with your attention will bring inevitably bring affection but because as she as spring says we're not so trained at at the thoughts of loving kindness and friendliness and the movements of loving kindness and friendliness we need often to use our conceptual mind to keep pointing us in that direction and it can be because it is so innate in us to love and to care and to feel connected because that's the truth of our life as we're connected. All it takes is, is reminders. I remember when I used to live in San Francisco. On, uh, I lived at 20th and Dolores Street right across from Dolores Park. I'm, for those of you city dwellers, you may know this. And I would, during the day, I'd be grumpy about the traffic and about the, the way that, you know, just the... I felt really isolated in San Francisco when I moved there and people seemed to be just caught up in their own world. And I had moved from a small town where people, uh, not a small town, a, a kind of middle-sized city. I'd come from Tucson, Arizona, and, and everybody said hello on the street. And they said, how are you? Or, you know, people felt safer. And I understand big cities, people don't feel quite as safe. But I'd feel kind of grumpy and... Uh, and I was thinking of two things today when I was thinking about that, that joining effect, that widening effect of, of metta. It would start with, uh, I just would remember, because I had done uh, some, some amount of practice of loving kindness, I'd done uh, weeks and weeks of, of moment by moment, wishing myself, wishing others well, and going through the whole sequence. And it was a really one of the most joyous practice periods of my life. So it got into my consciousness a little bit and I'd be as grumpy as can be and there I would be, I'd be walking up Dolores Street and I would just have a moment and I remembered to say, uh, may I be happy? And the first thing that would happen is I would at least just by bringing a little attention to myself, I would, uh, I would wake up to being, <laughs> being in a body <laughs> because I'd been kind of absorbed in my little drama in my mental state, I wasn't really tracking it very well. So I'd feel my body and I'd feel the sense of presence. And then I would feel a little bit of the, the goodwill, the, almost an instant state of feeling better about having been attended to. Having had some attention put on, put on my, uh, my mind and body and the state of, my, state of my condition at that time. So that was one thing. And then because the, the place felt a little bit cold, I started to, after having done a lot of loving-kindness practice, I started doing what, uh, what I call stealth metta, where I would walk down the street and every single person I would see, I'd say, may you be happy, may you be happy, may you be happy, I love you, I love you, may you be happy. And all of a sudden, that joining, it both oriented me, oriented me to the, the life of the street rather than just my ideas about it, and it transformed the experience of being there. And it was as though all the desires for connection were fulfilled, not because, I, uh, because people looked at me and, and as Spring was saying, people told me I love you. They, it was because I had, I had the, the uh, I'm hoping I'm going to find this poem. I had, as Rumi put it, or Hafiz put it, the full moon in my eyes. He, he says in one of these poems, uh, isn't it true that, you, that 
inwardly you're saying to your, admit, it's the poem's entitled Admit Something. Isn't it true that you, you're saying to everybody, love me, love me? Now, you don't say this out loud, otherwise somebody would call the cops. <laughs> but isn't that uh, what we want? And he says, why not provide that for, for others? Why don't you be the one with the full moon in your eyes, giving everyone what they're longing to hear? And that's really... Uh, within our power. That way of coming out of the narrow pre- world of our own preoccupation. And then I've been describing the other, this, what, that which we've been doing so much here, just to stop and to keep quiet and to fa- come to that place of one-pointedness, that one point that includes everything. We're only ever a split second, a half breath away from that sense of connecting with all of life. Like I said before, we're never disconnected to life. It's only in our imagination. We are, in every moment, being moved by, by the, the whole ship of the world. We are... It's, so our, our life is... We're so immersed in, in um, you could say, non-separateness. So one of the ways that we discover the non-separateness is in our practice, besides joining with metta, just being still, it's part of it, the, the teachings, and I think it was um, very much highlighted at the time of the Buddha, is that this is a back-to-nature practice. It's about discovering nature as it expresses itself in our body. And when we think about all, the, all that has conspired for us to be here, we, this is a, it's actually a profound um, reminder of the, what the Buddha called the, the deathless, the beginningless, the de- the, that everything... That life is just moving, and when we think of our own individuality, we think of our own birth, our own life, our own sickness, our own age, our own death, we miss a deeper, a deeper reality that we truly were never born and we never die, that we are part of this sea of, of unfolding circumstances. And we begin to sense that when we begin to connect with our body, to connect with nature, and as we described in the retreat, the the sense of the earth element, the hardness, the heaviness, the water element, the cohesion or the fluidity, the air, the winds, the, the pressure, the, the fire element, the heat, the coolness and heat, nature expressing itself in our body. And, the same, and when we walk in, uh, among the forest, we start to feel that kind of resonance that I don't exist alone apart from this. That my identity as thinking of myself as so separate, that's a, that's a mistake, that's a case of mistaken identity. It's a case of misperception. That this body, in fact, is, is um, so, that which I call myself, that which where there's such deep identification, this is mine, without all these elements, there's no body. As, um, so part of our practice begins to help us see that this whole, this whole physical organism, it's, it's really, 
it doesn't belong to anyone. It's come into this form temporarily and according to different conditions and then it goes right back ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It goes back to where it came. And if, if you want to contemplate this a little more, I, I love this little uh, statistical study about our bodies. Humans spend a third of their lives sleeping. Every person has a unique tongue print. There's enough iron in the human body to make one small nail. A cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves up to 60 miles per hour. Sneezes can travel over 100 miles per hour. It takes 17 muscles to smile, 43 to frown. It takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create a permanent, one permanent brow line. Most people blink about 25 times a minute, 20,000 times a day. The average person speaks about 31,500 words per day. Every breath we inhale, billions of atoms and end up, that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells, etc. The average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. Doesn't sound so personal, does it? If you unwound and joined the DNA from the genes of the cells, it would fit in an ice cube. The string would stretch 80 billion miles. That is from Earth to the sun and back again 400 times. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, about 1.5 pounds a year. By 70, an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. Most dust particles in your house are made from dead skin. The, <laughs> the body makes new stomach lining every five days. The body makes a new liver every six weeks. The body replaces new head hair every two to five years. The body replaces new eyebrows that consist of 450 hairs every three to five months. The body grows new skin once a month. The body replaces a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells all while you listen to this sentence. So at any other, at, in any given moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they are atoms. So if you think you are your physical body, or it's yours, it's me, it's mine, which body are you talking about? So we don't exist alone apart from all these elements and all that comes together. And this is, speaks to a very uh, profound teaching uh, highlighted beautifully by the, the teachings of a fellow named Nagarjuna who said that you are not the same nor are you different from that which you depend. So you're not, you're not just these elements. You're not the same, but you're not different. You're... And all the other influences, all the cultural influences, all the religious influences, everything that has come together to make you. You're not the same, nor are you different. And he goes on to say, this is the deathless teaching for Buddhas who care for the world. Because seeing through this illusion of our separateness and our ownership begins that process of helping us see through the illusion of other. We see that we are so deeply interwoven, just as... Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, when you look into the, a beautiful 
chrysanthemum, we get the impression that the flower is full of the cosmos. Everything in the cosmos is there in the flower, including the cloud, the sunshine, the soil, minerals, time and space, everything. It looks like the whole cosmos has come together to manifest the flower. The one contains the all. There is only one thing that is not there. That is a separate entity, a separate existence. The flower is full of the cosmos of everything else, but the flower is empty of a separate, independent self. No separate self, that is the first meaning of emptiness. You cannot be by yourself. You have to interbe with the cosmos, and we are all in you. If you look deeply into yourself, you see all of us in you. This is the beginning of the contemplation of interbeing, understanding the emptiness. So as Rumi put it, we are the mirror as well as the face in it. We are the pain and what cures pain. We are the sweet cold water as well as the jar that pours. We are tasting the taste of eternity in each moment. So back to nature, discovering the, the interbeing and the selflessness of our body. Because this is, um, because so much of our whole view about ourselves, what the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti, self-view. Our self-view, our otherwise known as ego, our idea of ourselves, the sense of me, is very much tied to our thoughts as we've been talking about throughout the retreat, our stories, our narrative, and all that comes with that, our desires, our fears, our memories, all, our, all the influences that gave rise to those thoughts. So the, our identity is tethered to our ideas, which are quite fluid. They're moving all the time. So it's a source, a great source of insecurity. Because if I think of myself as I'm terrific, somebody comes along and says, you're not so terrific. All of a sudden, the winds of praise and blame blow through my life. And if I've tethered my identity to being wonderful, I, that whole sense of myself crumbles in the face of that criticism. So very unreliable source of refuge to have a view of myself based on thought. Same with our bodies. If my identity is tethered to this body, this is me, this is mine. When this body does do whatever it does, it, it ages, it gets sick, it dies. Not according to my will or wish. As Jack Cornfield says, this is a rent-a-body. Because when it does that, to the degree that there's identification with it, I'm going to feel a sense of, uh, of, uh, of fear. And there's, I'll, be, I'll hold tight that my fists will grasp. And then if, of course, if, if my whole identity is tethered to time, time is always running out. So I, I want to look somewhere else and the teachings have us look somewhere else for the source of, of relief. Not in time, not in our bodies, not in our, uh, not in our thoughts. Because as soon as we're, our thoughts will just um, 
because they are so insecure, there's just no end to the, the seeking of trying to be special, trying to stand out. No end to the measuring, how high, how low. As, as one poem puts it, you know, uh, let me see if I can find it. This is Hafez. He says, live in the nowhere where you came from. Even though you have an address here. That's the, I, your idea. You have eyes that see from that nowhere and eyes that judge distances. How high, how low. You own two shops and you run back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap. Always getting smaller. Checkmate this, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You're the free swimming fish. So while we're busy comparing and building ourselves up and, and uh, figuring out how, what makes us special, how can anybody here be any more special than you are? Given the miracle that we've even shown up here, the unique expression of life that is each of us, as I, I discovered this when I was tuning into my, I have a 10-year-old daughter, and just watching her emerge, and she just, her name's Molly, and she just is quintessentially Molly. She has Molliness. Now, I know that that story that her mind is, you know, she started to see the, there was a point where, you know, she has kind of wavy hair, and she started to see the, the girls that had straight hair, and she had dark hair, and she started to see the ones that had blonde hair, and she straight, trying to straighten her hair. And so already her little personality view and her idea of, of comparing and measuring is starting. I can't present, prevent it, but I keep seeing her, her molliness. And we, we so lose that in, our, in the way that we live our lives. That we're so busy. It gets to the place of absurdity trying to be special. And I'm going to go on a little bit because I, I can't avoid reading this this, uh, this uh, example of the ego trip. In June, after the British musical group, The Planets, introduced a 60-second piece of complete silence on its latest album, representatives of the, state, representatives of the estate of the composer John Cage, who once wrote four hours, 33 minutes, which is 273 seconds of silence. The representatives of this state threatened to sue the group for ripping Cage off, (laughs) but failed, said the group, to specify which 60 of the 273 seconds it thought had been pilfered. Said Mike Batt of the Planets, mine is a much better silent piece. I am, a, I am able to say in one minute what took Cage four minutes and 33 seconds. <laughs> so as Emerson said, who you are, shout so loud, I can't hear what you say. And our practice helps us to see, to touch into that which we are. Not, and to see, not to get rid of who we think we are, not to get rid of all that miraculous story that plays through my, our mind that's also unique, but to see the difference between that virtual view of ourselves, one that in some ways doesn't even exist, 
see the difference between that virtual view and the, the reality of your experience as you are that is almost indescribable except for maybe I am or my, my stomach's growling or I, it's just, it's unspeakable. So our practice helps us see the difference between the concepts about things and reality. Helps dispel that illusion of the, the separate imagined version of ourselves. Doesn't deny the, the living, changing, non-personal version, or the, when I say non-personal, the version of ourselves, that, that just the experience of ourselves that's being so moved by life. So our practice keeps doing that. And then finally, just as I described on the night of the Buddha's awakening, the other way that we unleash our love and see through this illusion of separateness, widen that ring of being, is to see very closely and carefully for ourselves that everything that we take to be me and mine, everything that we say, this is me, this is mine, Let's see, usually our feelings, our thoughts, our emotions, our sensations, my sense experiences. If we pay close attention to that, in the course of our practice, we will start to see, and maybe you have already, that those three common characteristics, that those three marks of existence, that if we, if we really grok them, if, we, if they really touch our hearts, if we see the truth of it, it will break through that, uh, that, um, that illusion of separateness. And what are those three common characteristics? They are that everything that can be known by our senses, everything, and even the knowing itself, has the nature to arise and pass away. This is the law of impermanence. Everything is marked by impermanence. And that anything marked by impermanence cannot be said to be an independent self-existence, cannot be me. It is not permanent. It is, so it, it, there's, there is no me in anything that's permanent. And anything that is permanent and not self is also um, not reliable as a source of ultimate satisfaction. It's unsatisfactory, unreliable. And the more we see that, the more our mind relaxes. It stops trying to find something permanent in the changing. It stops finding, trying to find something reliable in the unreliable and stops trying to make a self out of things that are not self. Now, when I say this is all, everything here and you are marked by non-self, it doesn't mean you're not here. It's just like when you look up at the sky and you look at those stars that exist connected to all the other stars. There's that one that looks kind of like a cup called the Big Dipper. There's no Big Dipper. There is no Big Dipper. There is no you that exists separately. But because we see through that illusion of the concept of Big Dipper, do those stars disappear? Those stars don't disappear. They then reveal themselves as much more connected to all the other stars. They mingle then back with the 
with the sky. They come out of the tangle of fear thinking and they live in silence. And they flow down and down into ever-widening rings of being. That poem. So this is why we want to come out of the self-illusion. This is essential dharma. This is the liberating insight of the Buddha is to see through the notions that we have about ourselves and to see that we are so deeply connected to one another. And the more we know that, we can't help but fall in love. We can't help but want, want to help, care. So any notion that you have that this you're going to end up in uh, you know, as a kind of blob of apathy, it just doesn't happen if you awaken. Just the opposite. So I think I'll leave you after my hour-long talk with the words of Derek Walcott in his poem called Love After Love. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. So let's feast on our life. And I'll end our little silent period with a, a chant that I, I like from a, from a Hindu teacher named Neem Karoli Baba. I am like the wind, no one can hold me. I belong to everyone, no one can own me. The whole world is my home, all are my family. I live in every heart, I will never leave thee, oh, crystal tears. Oh, taking away my fears. I'll chant it once more. I am like the wind. No one can hold me. I belong to everyone. No one can own me. The whole world is my home. All are my family. I live in every heart. I will never leave thee, oh, crystal tears, oh, taking away my fears.
May all beings find their home in things the way they are. May all beings see through the self-illusion, see through the illusion of separateness. May all beings know deep love. Thanks for listening. Thanks for hanging out for a little over an hour. We have we can take 15 minutes for walking now and fresh air and, and continuing with your practice, and then we'll. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.